And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is August 31st, 243rd day of the year. 122 days remain to the end of the year. And let's see. Holidays and observances. National Trail Mix Day. Eat Outside Day. International Overdose Awareness Day. So if you've overdosed, you need to be aware of it. National Zoo Awareness Day. International Cabernet Day. Social Distance Learning Day. Happiness Happens Month. Black Business Month. National Civility Month. National Immunization Awareness Month. Back to School Month. National Traffic Awareness Month. Psoriasis Awareness Month. National Hair Loss Awareness Month. And National Breastfeeding Month. Well, all that having been said, on August 31st in the year 1056, after a sudden illness a few days previously, Byzantine Empress Theodora dies childless, ending the Macedonian dynasty. Remember, the Byzantine Empire was the Eastern Roman Empire. 1057 AD, abdication of Byzantine Emperor Michael VI Bringus after just one year on the throne. 1218, Al Kamal becomes Sultan of the Ayyubid dynasty. 1314, King Hakan V of Norway moves the capital from Bergen to Oslo, because also was easier to spell. 1422, King Henry V of England dies of dysentery while in France. His son Henry VI becomes King of England at the age of nine months. 1535, Pope Paul III excommunicates English King Henry VIII from the church. He drew up a papal bull of excommunication, which began Ius Qui Immobilis. 1776, William Livingston, the first governor of New Jersey, began serving his first term. This date in 1795, war of the first coalition. British capture, Trincomati. That's present-day Sri Lanka from the Dutch in order to keep it out of French hands. 1798, Irish Rebellion. Irish rebels with French assistance established the short-lived Republic of Connacht. 1813, the Peninsula War. Spanish troops repel a French attack in the Battle of San Marcial. 1864, during the American Civil War, Union forces led by General Sherman launched an assault on Atlanta. 1876, Ottoman Sultan Murad V is deposed, succeeded by his brother, Abdul Hamid II. Can't trust anybody. 1886, a 7.0 Charleston earthquake affects southeastern South Carolina with a maximum Michaelian intensity of 10, which is considered extreme. 60 people die with damage estimated 5 to $6 million in $1886. 1888, Marianne Nichols is murdered, first of the Jack the River confirmed victims. 1895, German Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin patents his navigatable uh, balloon. 1907, Russian UK signed the Anglo Russian Convention by which UK recognizes Russians' preeminence in northern Persia, while Russia recognizes British preeminence in southeastern Persia and Afghanistan. Both powers pledged not to interfere in Tibet. 1916, World War One started the Battle of Mont St. Quentin, successful assault with the Australian Corps during the Hundred Days Offensive. 1920, Polish-Soviet War, decisive Polish victory in the Battle of Kamara. 1933, the Inter-Nationalist Group wins the 1933 Andorran parliamentary election. That's the first election in Dora held with universal male suffrage. 1935, in an attempt to stay out of the growing tensions concerning Germany and Japan, the U.S. passes the first of its neutrality acts. 1936, Radio Prague, now the official international broadcasting station of the Czech Republic, goes on the air. 
1939, Nazi Germany mounts a false flag attack on the Gliwitz radio station, creating an excuse to attack Poland the next day, which started World War II in Europe. 1940, Pennsylvania Central Airlines trip 19 crashes near Lovettsville, Virginia. Several airborne, several aeronautical board investigation of the accidents, the first investigation to be conducted under the Bureau of Air Commerce Act in 1938. 1941, World War II, Serbian parliamentary forces defeat Germans in the Battle of Znika. 1943, USS Harmon, first U.S. Navy ship to be named after a black person is commissioned. 1949, retreated the Democratic Army of Greece and Albania after its defeat on Gramos Mountain marks the end of the Greek Civil War. 1950, TWA Flight 903 crashes near Italy, uh, Alberud, Egypt. Ate, Alberud, Egypt. Can't read. Uh, killing on 55 on board. 1957, Federation of Malaya, now Malaysia, gained its independence from the UK. 1959, a parcel bomb sent by Nago Din Nu, younger brother and chief advisor of South Vietnamese President Neo Din Diem, fails to kill King Nordom Sihanouk of Cambodia. 1962, Trinidad and Tobago become independent. 1963, Crown Colony of North Borneo, now Sabah, achieves self-governance. 1972, Aeroflot Flight 558 crashes in the Azarovsky district of Bashkortostan, Russia, then the Soviet Union, killing all 102 people on board. 1986, Aeromexico Flight 498 collides with a Piper PA-28 Cherokee over Cerritos, California, kills 67 in the air and 15 on the ground. And as I've said many times, it's a bad day when a plane falls on you. 1986, Hasso saw the Soviet passenger liner Admiral Nakimov sink in the Black Sea after colliding with the bulk carrier uh, Pyotr Vasev, kills uh, 423. 1987, Thai Airways Flight 385 crashes into the ocean near Koh Phuket, Thailand, killing all 83 people on board. 1998, Delta Airlines Flight 1141 crashes during takeoff from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, kill 14. 1988, the CAAC Flight 301 overshoots a runway at Kaitak Airport and crashes into Kowloon Bay, killing seven people. 1991, Kazakhstan declares its independence from the Soviet Union. 1993, Russia completes removing its troops from Lithuania. 1994, Russia completes removing its troops from Estonia. 1996, Saddam Hussein's troops seized Erbil from the Kurdish Mossad Barzani um, after the Kurdish Mossad Barzani accept uh, appeal for help to defeat his Kurdish rival PUK. 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, her partner Dodi Fayed and driver Henri Paul die in a car crash in Paris, though the question about whether she really died as a result of the car crash is still an unanswered question. Uh, 1999, first of a series of bombings in Moscow killed one person and wound 40 others. 1999, an LAPA Boeing 737-200 crashes during takeoff from Jorge Newberry Airport in Buenos Aires, killing 65, including two on the ground. 2002, Typhoon Rusa, the most powerful typhoon to hit South Korea in 43 years, made a landfall, killing at least 236 people. 2005 to 2005, Al Amma Bridge Stampede in Baghdad kills 953 people. 2006, Edvard Munch's famous painting, The Scream, stolen August 22, 2004, is recovered in a raid by Norwegian police. 2016, Brazil's President Dilma Rousseff is impeached and removed from office. 2019, a sightseeing helicopter crashes in the mountains of Sudavara out of Norway, killing all six occupants. Alrighty. All that having been said, we've been talking about um, famous deaths. 
in Hollywood. Let's talk about Marie McDonald, who I thought was one of the most beautiful women on TV, on uh, the movies. Story began when a truck driver was driving down the highway and saw what appeared to be a woman wandering down the highway in her bathrobe in the middle of the night. He pulled his truck over and got down and approached a middle-aged woman, silhouetted in his headlights, and she seemed disoriented and a little banged up, so he offered her a ride into town. Well, he found out who she was the next day when the newspapers exploded with the headlines, wandering in the desert, star found bruised and beaten. And the star was actually Marie McDonald, known as the body, because she was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. But she had a bizarre life. Born in 1923 to a former Ziegfeld Follies dancer and prison warden in Bergen, Kentucky. Parents separated when she was seven, and her mother pushed her toward a future in entertainment as she developed into a truly beautiful teenager. And at every small town beauty contest there was, including Miss Yonkers, Miss Lowe's Paradise, Miss Coney Island, one Miss New York title for the Miss America competition. And of course, that brought her to the attention of George White, who cast her in his review, George White Scandals. Well, she toured with the show, wound up in Hollywood after Scandals played the Biltmore Theater there, posed for famous illustrator Alex Raymond, who used her as the model for both Dale Arden and Princess Aura. In the Flash Gordon series, hastily married Richard Allard, a frat boy, a friend of Errol Flynn's, and, but had the marriage annulled three weeks later when she found out the diamond ring he gave her was fake. Can you imagine? While playing a chorus girl in the Busby Berkeley film Ziegfeld Girl, she met Sir Charles Frederick Bernard, who helped her get into the movies. Got her set up with a standard contract with Universal Pictures in 41, and she got small roles in such films as Melody Lane, It Started with Eve, and Pardon My Sarong. Long career with Universal wasn't going to be, though, and the studio dropped her contract after just one year. Signing with Paramount, she shined as a voluptuous secretary in the film Lucky Jordan, fell for high-powered Hollywood agent Vic Orsati, and married him in January of 43. But in spite of the fact he was a agent, her career was going nowhere was a string of small parts and less than A-class pictures that year. And when her contract ran out, she didn't try to get it renewed. Signing with independent producer Hunt Stromberg, scored a few good roles, most notably in the drama Guest in the House, which uh, garnered some of her best reviews ever. And um, it was that point she got tagged with the nickname The Body by publicity agent United Artists, and that title followed her throughout her career. Became one of the most popular World War II pinup girls. Appeared on the cover of Yank, uh, the Army Weekly, weekly uh, twice in one month. That was unheard of. And after working in several other mediocre films, she broke her contract with Stomberg, sued him in court for failing to promote her career to the extent he'd promised. She won $19.67. Bus fare from San Francisco to L.A. Starred in Heaven's Gate, in the Heaven's Gate of its day, an expensive MGM back musical flop, titled "Living in a Big Way," co-starred Gene Kelly. I mean, you have to wonder why it wasn't a huge hit. Anything he touched in the '40s was just went through the roof. Marie blamed it on the hatchet job that went down in the editing room. She said nobody saw that picture except her husband and her mother. And it was a great script. And it was torn in half and thrown out of the window by a genius at Metro. So she decided to wash this down with a trip to Reno to divorce Vic. And while in Reno, she had a brief affair with mobster Ben Bugsy Siegel. He seemed to get around. Siegel also hired her right atop his float as Queen of the Flamingo on the Hell Dorado Day Parade. When she returned home, married millionaire shoe tycoon Harry Carl, swelling that this is forever. Then she toured across the country in a nightclub act. When she got back, she was cast in Tell It to the Judge, followed by Hit Parade in 1950. Well, neither one of those films, even though they got publicity, helped her floundering career, but she did score the juicy role of Billy Dove in a stage production of Born Yesterday at the El Capitan Theater. 
And she really shone in that part, winning praise from critics and peers alike. Well, too bad she hadn't done that play before George Kaufman cast the film role, although things might have turned out differently for her. Meanwhile, her marriage to Carl hadn't gone very well. She was often ill, and her new millionaire husband dropped a quarter of a million dollars on medical bills in an effort to find out why. Had too many miscarriages, possibly due to her Percodan habit. He was arrested for hit-and-run accident and for driving under the influence of drugs. And Carl, for his part, was charged with assault with a deadly weapon for trying to run down two reporters outside the courthouse. Very bad place to try to run down reporters. He felt throwing money at his marriage might work, so he gave Maria a custom Cadillac Le Mans Roadster. And in 1954, this car was equipped with a TV set. Didn't have cable, though, because you'd have to drag that thing behind you. A radio telephone, a chrome and gold cocktail bar. Now, I don't know how they managed to fit that into that car, but they did. Paint job alone cost a fortune. It was platinum dust-based paint. Well, he was wrong. Even though Carl made Marie first woman in the world to be able to chat while driving, she divorced him right after that, saying the reason she was uh, sick all the time because she was, in fact, allergic to him. Well, feeling she might have been a little bit too hasty, she set sail with Carl to Europe, attempting to remarry him in four distinct, distinct countries before finally coming back to the States to have the happy nuptials in uh, Yuma, Arizona. Well, that marriage lasted all of a few months before they separated again. Third reconciliation also proved short-lived, and that's when Marie was found wandering in the desert near Indiana, California, wearing her bathrobe and somewhat the worst for wear in the middle of the night. She claimed two men broke into her home, robbed beat her, and forced her into their car, to, and then released her in the desert several hours later. She was bruised, sporting a black eye and two missing teeth. Well, police were suspicious when they found a ransom note in her fireplace been pieced together with letters from a newspaper found in Marie's house. Also found the novel The Fuzzy Pink Nightgown about a movie star was kidnapped from her home and held for ransom. Well, to try to distract everybody from these discoveries, Marie loudly stated that ex-husband Harry Carl must have been behind the kidnapping. She was obliging to the nice policeman and Put on her best house robe, has her living room and front yard filled with reporters eager to watch her reenact the crime. And for once, she was actually the star of the show, and she basked in the attention. Eventually, though, she confessed it was a hoax, a desperate attempt to save her sagging career. And it did work. For a while. Put out an album that year, The Body Sings, and it sold well. Divorced Carl again for the last time, and got a multi-million dollar settlement. 1958, she played in the Jerry Lewis comedy The Geisha Boy, wonderful as a temperamental movie star. She returned to the Moulin Rouge Theater, formerly the Earl Carroll Theater, where she was fired while still a chorus girl. This time, she was the headliner and felt well earned triumph as the curtain rose to a roaring crowd. Harry Carl was in the house with an agenda. He paid minions to shower her with 11 bouquets of red roses as she took her final bows on stage. And when she went back to her dressing room, there was a $10,000 mink coat and a Cartier watch waiting for her. You gotta wonder about this, because didn't she accuse him of kidnapping her the year before? I mean, why did she divorce this guy again? Well, she would have had a long, enviable nightclub career, but... She let go of the movie star dream despite the profound frustration. Uh, married two more men, Louis Bass and Edward Callahan. And if you're not kept count, that makes six marriages to five men in 20 years. That even beats Elizabeth Taylor's record. And speaking of Elizabeth Taylor, Marie dated Michael Wilding, who was married to Taylor at the time. But he wouldn't leave her for Marie. Taylor dumped him for Mike Todd anyway, and away we go. Well, 1963, Marie did her last film with another over-the-top blonde dynamo, Jane Mansfield. It was called Promises, Promises. And it was bad all around, from the horrible set to the tasteless, semi-pornographic end product. Jane disliked Marie right off, probably out of jealousy. I mean, nobody ever called Jane Mansfield the body. Both stars were in their twilight years. Neither had been an A-lister, and both were reduced to doing semi-nude scenes while mugging outrageously for the cameras in an independent film that would be banned in several states as soon as it was released. 
Jane thought Marie was getting special concessions and trying to upstage her. But she apparently thought this about every actress she worked with. So she made Marie's life a living hell on set. And Marie couldn't wait for the whole thing just to be over with. Well, soon it would be over for Marie. She'd already tried suicide once, shortly after her second divorce from Carl, and she was hurt on Percodan and suffering from chronic insomnia. Had a nervous collapse while on a nightclub tour in Australia and was committed to a psychiatric institution from which she made a daring escape, claiming they were trying to brainwash her. Well, back in the state, she was arrested for trying to forge Percodan prescriptions and put on probation. Had bleeding ulcers, and her heart stopped during an operation to remove part of her stomach in an attempt to stop the bleeding. And unbelievably, she married a seventh time in 1964 to the co-producer of Promises, Promises, Donald Taylor. It was Taylor who found her slumped over her dressing table, dead from an overdose of either Secondol or Percodan. Nobody really knew for sure. She's only 42. Her death was ruled an accidental suicide, but uh, maybe she was just tired of the whole thing. Taylor walked into that same room, took a fatal overdose himself two years later. Well, Marie desperately wanted to be a movie star, not just a novelty act. And too bad the drama in her real life far outweighed any performance she ever gave. Sad footnote to her legacy, she's still remembered as the body. Not as the pretty, talented, and versatile human being who gave Judy Holliday a run for her money and born yesterday. Certainly, it, uh, she had um, a truly beautiful appearance. Now, this next one I watched in a number of features named Margot Hemingway. One of her films had the camera focus on a beautiful woman, her silk scarf blowing in the wind, hint of a seductive smile on her lips. She dabbed perfume from a body, bo- a large bottle to put behind her ears. Her face was absolutely gorgeous, her cheekbone chiseled and high on her face, her mouth seductive, her eyebrows, which were thick, lent a almost scholarly impression. Then you cut to that same girl in that same film floating down a river in an evening gown drinking champagne and laughing beside a man in a tuxedo. You know, according to that message, you too can feel beautiful and live a glamorous life just by this perfume, and the world is your oyster. Well, but for the girl in the ad herself, it was uh, certainly an illusion. And the cruel lie she'd been able, unwilling to overcome, a sentiment that would eventually destroy her. Photos and visions of Margot portray the striking similarity between her and her famous grandfather, Ernest Hemingway. Had those same intense eyes, the same thick, dark brown eyebrows, and the same thoughtful expression. Well, with those features, she also inherited his restless spirit, his love of alcohol, and his clinical depression. Born Margot Louise Hemingway in Portland, Oregon. Changed her first name to Margot, M-A-R-G-A-U-X. After learning her parents, Puck and Jack conceived her after downing a bottle of Chateau Margot wine. Grew rapidly from her awkward stage adolescence into a statuesque six-foot stunner by age 14. Her family, including uh, baby sister Marielle and elder sister Joan, moved back to the Hemingway family farm in Ketchum, Idaho, where her grandfather shot himself in 1961. Father Jack was a fanatical and outdoorsman, as his father was, and life on the farm was to her paradise. And her beauty, of course, got her discovered. During a trip to New York while lounging in the fame uh, Palm Court at the Plaza Hotel, she was spotted by promoter Earl Weston. And he saw her potential on the spot. Almost overnight, she had a million-dollar contract as a spokesperson for Fabergé's new perfume, Babe. The first million-dollar contract ever awarded to a model. And it was her first time out. She moved in with and married Weston and hit the 70s disco party circuit. Studio 54 was a drug and celebrity-infused glittering den of iniquity that would spin everybody's head, but uh, Margot had been a regular there since she was a kid. Sailed right past the velvet ropes, mingled with the likes of Liza Minnelli, Bianca Jagger, and Andy Warhol. Appeared on the cover of Vogue and Time and amassed a vast collection of designer clothes, mostly gifts from her modeling gigs. One of the first supermodels to be known by her name, and not just her face. Well, with the fame and attention also came the drugs and the alcohol. 
You know, Carl, she was famous. Her age was no problem when she wanted to drink. She used to say, I don't need my ID. I have my eyebrows. And Studio 54 is well known for its drug-friendly environment. I mean, after all, folks, it was the 70s. Literally, everybody around her was doing them, including the rich and the famous. Her new friends, whom she desperately wanted to impress. Well, what she had working for her in this was her relation to one of the greatest American writers of the 20th century. Celebrities are drawn, of course, to other celebrities, especially those whose mythos dwarfs their own. Their grandfather's larger-than-life legend went beyond his exquisite books and short stories. He was a towering figure, sportsman, adventurer, and epic hellraiser. Also an alcoholic. And Margot, living up to the name, meant being able to drink herself into a stupor without it showing. She partied all night at Studio 54 and then ready and able the next day for those 6 a.m. photo shoots. A lot of substances are needed to accomplish that, even for the young. Margot had a secret that made her this lifestyle particularly risky. She was epileptic. Had to take phenobarbital to control her seizures, and that's a very powerful drug. Alcohol and phenobarbital are a dangerous combination. And shortly after that, she became a coke fiend, and her marriage crumbled. 1976, she made her film debut in Lipstick, a slick mystery about a model who's stalked and raped by a psychopath. And it featured her baby sister, Mario. And to be perfectly frank, the movie was terrible. The script, the direction, and the acting was all brutally panned by critics and audiences stayed away. Mario's performance was the one bright spot in the film. Critics raved about the 14-year-old, predicting a successful career ahead of her. Uh... Margot uh, felt the public had tired of her and saw the next Hemingway uh, to f- uh, fetishize. As if people were tired of me and gave her all the attention, she said years later. And the critics were right about Mario. Her career took off and she spent the next decade as an A-lister in Hollywood. Our sister spiraled into oblivion. 1979, Margot married a Venezuelan filmmaker, Bernard Fuchsia, and moved to Paris. I mean, does it get any more uh, glamorous than that? A supermodel, South African filmmaker in Paris. Should have been bliss, a paradise, but it wasn't. They attempted to film a project together, a documentary about her grandfather, which took four years of Margot's life, going absolutely nowhere. Frustrated and depressed, she divorced for the second time in 1985 and turned down a darker road to dysfunctional alcoholism. Gained 75 pounds off a contemplated suicide and wondered what she was going to do with the rest of her life. Uh, she might have died then had she not checked herself into the Betty Ford Clinic, emerged from her, her 28-day stay confident her life was back on track. But while she was on the shelf, so to speak, the world had moved on. She was in her 30s, still ravishing, but in a town where youth is everything, and she was over the hill. She made one film after Lipstick, a French movie called Love in C Minor, which did nothing to further her career in America. And her options were somewhat limited. She did owe money to the IRS and debt, decided to take you after his offer and pose nude and playboy. Well, once you pose nude and playboy, where's an out-of-work actress go from there? She couldn't answer that question. Well, no offers, either for modeling or film, so she embarked on a spiritual journey that would take her from a shaman's tent in the northwest all the way to the shores of India. Well, things went badly in India, however, where her behavior became erratic and a culture with strict social guidelines. Spent time in an Indian jail before friends and family were able to bring her back to the States and hospitalize her. She was frankly losing her grip on the reality. By the mid-1990s, she had alienated most of her family, living alone in a rented bungalow in Santa Monica. Only been living there three weeks when it all came to an end. July 1st, not having heard from Margot for three days, her friend Julie Stabil went to the apartment to check on her. Got no response when she knocked, so she peeked in through the bedroom window and saw a horrible scene. Judy got the aid of a nearby construction worker to break into the house. He took two steps in and stepped back out, saying the smell was overwhelming. So they called the police. The scene was more than a little strange. Her nightstand had been set up like a pagan altar with human-shaped candles, pendants encircled with white satin ribbon and pieces of paper and crumpled into the shapes of hearts. On the pieces of paper, she had written love, healing, protection for Margot forever, and her body was unfortunately badly decomposed, severely bloated, and her skin blackened and slipping. 
She'd been lying there with no air conditioning in the Southern California early summer heat for three days. She was uh, found 35 years to the day from her grandfather's death. She was only 41. Well, her long goodbye, of course, was over. The odds were stacking against Margot. Her great-grandfather, grandfather, and uncle had all committed suicide. Mental illness and alcoholism were family traditions. Never addressed, always swept under the great all-encompassing fabric of the Hemingway legacy. She based her self-esteem on her appearance, and when her looks began to fade, she had nothing else to hold on to, so she fell. Kept on falling till she hit the bottom and checked out with an overdose of phenobarbital. Sad truth is, she had checked out years before. One found dead in Santa Monica barely resembled the girl who sold millions of bottles of perfume and floated down a river in an evening gown. Maybe she never really was that girl at all. Well, let's talk about another beautiful woman, Lupe Velez. Labrador bedroom was straight out of a Hollywood movie set. Floor was covered in a thick plush white rug, floor to ceiling, mirrors on the walls, candles and flowers positioned to confer the hushed effect of a chapel. Two huge portraits of a beautiful woman hung across from each other. A huge ten foot wide bed with massive black, silver, and gold headboard dominated the space. Above the headboard, a giant gilt crucifix lying in the bed on white satin sheets in full stage makeup. And a lovely formal gown was the Mexican spitfire of the movies, Lupe Valdez. Looked that ready for a close-up. Your last one. Decades later, Viola and Hollywood hanger on would tarnish this image with allegations of a vomit-laden trail leading from the bed to the bathroom and a woman whose head was jammed down a toilet in a decidedly grotesque and ungamorous pose drowned. Well, let's see if we can set the record straight. Lupe was born in San Luis Potosi, Mexico in 1908. She was a gifted dancer. She adored performing from an early age. And as a child, she sold kisses to men in exchange for portraits of her favorite movie stars. In 1927, she moved to Los Angeles, caught the eye, and produced a Hal Roach, who cast her in her first film, Sailor Beware. Followed this up with a breakout role in the Douglas Fairbanks adventure film, The Gaucho. At first, Douglas Fairbanks didn't think she exuded enough spunk for the character, but when a stagehand stole her dog as a prank, barely a five-foot-tall actress severely beat him, and seeing this, Fairbanks hired her on the spot. And Gaucho made her a star. Well, she wasted no time living up to her various nicknames, which included the Mexican Spitfire, the Tornado, the Hot Tamale, the Hot Pepper, and the not-so-subtle Whoopie Loopy. Her temper itself was famous, as were her numerous and highly publicized love affairs. According to the story, her lovers include Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, Clark Gable, Tom Mix, John Gilbert, uh, who was on the rebound from Garbo at the time, and many others. Had a reputation for outrageous public behavior, including violent public brawls with a love interest and crude cockfights and pornography punctuated private parties. She left scars on her lovers, both physical and mental, and crammed several lifetimes of baggage into her brief tenure on earth. She once said, I don't like to see any one man too often. Same face over and over. Pretty soon his nose begins to look like the nose of a dog. And people want to talk and I like to give them something to talk about. Often compared to other Latina Hollywood stars. Uh, such as stoic Dolores Del Rio. Del Rio's classier image was a stark contrast of Velez's childish shenanigans and publicity stunts. Went on to play the exotic leads in several well-received films, including Resurrection, West of Zanzibar, The Half-Naked Truth, and a movie even called Hot Pepper. Got involved with a very young Gary Cooper in the late 20s, and their public brawls made the headlines for three tumultuous years. Lupe claimed Cooper had the biggest organ in Hollywood, and you have to ask who would know this better, but not the ass to push it in well. This was a blush-inducing stuff to most folks. Velez was notoriously jealous, reportedly tailing Cooper wherever he went and insisted on being on the set whenever he made a movie. In an act that gives sin of a woman a whole new meaning, she once unzipped his pants in public, went down on her knees and smelled his crotch, proclaiming she could smell another woman's perfume. Well, Cooper actually wanted to marry her, believe it or not. 
and all good Catholic girls supposed they want to get married, but his mother didn't approve. You have to wonder why. When she, he finally married somebody else, Libby didn't take it too well. Followed him to the train station, pulled out a pistol, and shot at him, nearly missing as he dove into a car. I mean, talk about spitfire. 1934, she licked her wounds by marrying a male physical perfection personified Olympic champion and Tarzan star Johnny Weissmuller. wonder what Cheetah had to say about that. Or Jane. Left her mark on the man as well. Or maybe you should say marks, as in scratches, bruises, bites. Girl needed to learn that passion is one thing, violent rage is something else entirely. And her appetite for sex was insatiable. Then said that she loved like a wild animal, her sexual aggression knew no restraint, and she flirted with the description, nymphomaniac. Well, that ma- marriage lasted five years, which is a shock in and of itself. Now, she began making a series of pictures called The Mexican Spitfire that became the work for which she was best known. The series exploited her race and her reputation so overtly it seemed unlikely that she had ever been able to overcome the typecasting fallout and be allowed to play different, more serious roles. And as the popularity of the theme waned, she found herself on the far side of her 30s, no longer young by Hollywood standards, and dating a small-time Austrian actor who worked part-time dubbing French dialogue in films for Warner Brothers. That was quite a come down from the likes of Gary Cooper and Johnny Weissmuller. His name was Harold Raymond. She soon found him herself pregnant with his child. According to most written accounts, when Lupi informed Raymond about the pregnancy, he was cavalier in the roof, refusing to marry her. And his, her own suicide note skewered his uh, reputation, leaving the world with the impression he was a heartless cad who abandoned her and her, her child to their fate. She wrote to Harold, May God forgive you and forgive me to take my life and our babies before I bring him into the shame or killing him. Signed, Lupi. However, Ruman told a newspaper later that Lupi had been in the love of his life and he intended to marry her, but they had yet to set a date. I think that's a case of he protests too much. Well, apparently nobody told Lupi, despondent and acutely aware that news of an illegitimate child destroyed what little remainder of her career. She bid farewell to a few friends on the evening of December 14th, 1944, went upstairs to a lavish master bedroom suite. Lit candles, arranged flowers, dimmed the lights, dressed herself with great care, and descended into her massive bed, took 75 Sikinol tablets, and died. She was just 36. And this is where fact and myth diverge. According to Kenneth Anger's uh, infamous slash and burn, tell all mess Hollywood Babylon, the loopy didn't actually die in bed. But it was suddenly awakened with violent nausea and crawled, puking all the way to her bathroom toilet, where she passed out with her head still inside the toilet bowl. Housemaid discovered her the following morning, still as she passed out with her head stuck in the toilet. Since the only accounting of this ever happened comes from anger, and it's not backed by any official reports or eyewitness accounts, the only conclusion to be drawn is that uh, he was perhaps mistaken. In a recent uh, biography about Lupe, Count Lupe Velez, The Life and Career of Hollywood's Mexican Spitfire, author Michael Vogel dug up a little-known memoir published by former Beverly Hills Chief of Police Clifton Anderson, who was the first man on the scene of Lupe's suicide. And he wrote in his memoir, Beverly Hills is My Beat, published in 1960, that Lupe is found dead in her bed. And as Michelle reminded her readers, 75 signals is a debilitating lethal dose that could have knocked the petite Velez comatose in minutes. And Michelle Vogel also put forth that Terry Lupe was actually pregnant by Gary Cooper, who was married to somebody else, and in any case, done with Lupe. So she knew her options were limited. It's hard to believe her last act on earth would be to destroy the reputation and career of an innocent man in order to protect Cooper's reputation, but then who really knew what she was thinking? Abortion is a sin. Suicide's a... Also a sin, but apparently a lesser one. She wanted to kill her baby, but she's okay with taking both their lives instead of just the one. Sounds like she wasn't really thinking at all. And it's sad that Lupe Velez has now slipped into the shadows of obscurity. Remember for horrific death when she's remembered at all. And it's safe to assume if Anger hadn't mentioned her in Hollywood Babylon, her name would have passed even further into oblivion. She's a good example of how fame or infamy is truly a mixed blessing. And looking at her uh, 
some pictures of her. She was a beautiful uh, young woman. Let's talk about Jean Seberg. She was a beautiful teenager with the ponytail and a tight-fitting professional suit. Demurely uh, resisted uh, looking directly at the man standing behind the camera questioning her. She smiled nervously and said, My name is Jean Seberg. He asked, Where are you from? She said, Marshalltown, Iowa. When were you born? November 13th, 1938. uh, That makes you what age? And at this, her eyes reached upward as she leaned forward and said, 17 and 11 months. Well, she was breathtakingly beautiful and charming, both in her innocence and in her freshman attempt at sophistication. She'd later become an overnight sensation and sadly the target of a vile character assassination campaign by an arm of the U.S. government. We're talking about Gene Seberg and what the FBI did to clean-cut all American Midwestern girls and its frenzy to keep America safe from dangerous leftist influences. J. Edgar Hoover was an issue that shouldn't have happened. Jane was like something sent from Central Casting, a corn-fled beauty straight from the heartland of the country who wanted to be an actress. Almost too pretty to be the girl next door, and that one just publish, uh, the publicist type. Father was a pharmacist, her mother was a school teacher, and didn't get much more Americana than that. Grew up in a Lutheran family, wore white gloves with pearl buttons, attended church every Sunday, and appeared in school plays. Like a many, million other um, pretty girls, she... Dreaming of being discovered, being plucked from the masses and set aside for stardom. And unlike a million other girls, her dreams did come true. Her drama teacher, Carol Dodd Hollingsworth, along with a wealthy entrepreneur by the name of J. William Fisher, realized her talent and potential. Wrote to director Otto Preminger about Jean. Just conducting a nationwide search for an unknown actress to star in his new film, St. Joan, based on the stage play by George Bernard Shaw. Apparently, her small-town connections won her a coveted reading in front of Preminger, and off Jean went to Chicago. Well, Preminger was enchanted with Seabird's innocence and natural, spontaneous acting style. He brought her out to Los Angeles for a screen test and cast her as the martyred French Hill one shortly after that. She was just 17, but had only acted in high school plays, and now was the star of a major Hollywood film. Now, Preminger was a notorious taskmaster and put the entire responsibility to film success on her young shoulders. Plus, it was having relations uh, with Joan of Arc, a role that really waste to far more established actresses. He was very cruel to her own set, yelled at her in front of the crew, and she often broke into tears. In the climactic burn at the stake scene, her costume really did catch fire, giving her mild burns and a fair redoing the scene. Cameras captured that genuine trepidation, and that fear made it into the final cut. In his biography of Jean, David Richards wrote that Otto took Jean's sincerity and stomped it into the ground, often requiring her to perform 20 takes or more for the most uh, trivial of scenes. Unsurprisingly, the the picture bombed. It didn't just bomb, it really bombed, as in a Heavygate-style disaster. Critics panned Jean's performance as woefully amateurish and uneven. New York Times wrote Miss Seberg, who emerged a winner in a well-publicized international search to play the soldier saint, is for all her evident sincerity, callow, and unconvincing in a long, difficult, complex part. Now, Preminger got his share of criticism as well, with critics calling his directorial style of Distant camera angles, then possibly long, uncut scenes, indulgent, lacking intimacy. Even in spite of this, Otto cast Jean in his next film, Bonjour Tristy, based on a novel by Francois Sagan. Some say he was obsessed with making her a star and controlling the trajectory of her career. It seems almost like he and Alfred Hitchcock were comparing notes. Once again, Otto was abusive during the filming, often threatening to replace with Aldrich Hepman. Despite stellar co-stars David Niven and Deborah Kerr, this film flopped as well, with Chris again dissing Jean's performances. New York Times suggested she be sent back to the small-town high school stage, and New York um, Herald Tribune says she was horribly miscast as a French nymphette. Well, this last failure 
virtually ended her mainstream Hollywood career. Too bad the same couldn't be said for Preminger. When she commented on honor of Preminger years later, she said he was the most charming dinner guest and the most sadistic director. Well, she married millionaire Francois Morel while filming Bonjour Tristan. The relationship was not a happy one. She chose to marry in Marshalltown and the hometown crowd sensed a distinct uh, pretentious hardness in the demeanor of their golden girl, a quality that hadn't been there when she left him two years before. Meanwhile, Otto uh, Preminger sold her contract to Paramount. She later said Preminger got rid of me like the used clinics. Paramount cast her in the mouse that roared and did fairly well with the artsy set. She sought to hone her acting skills and applied to the actor's studio, but they didn't even bother saying no. They just ignored her. Things started looking up for her when her husband introduced her to avant-garde French director Jean-Luc Goddard, who then uh, had Paramount loan her to him for his film uh, Breathless. It wasn't a mainstream Hollywood cookie-cutter movie, but it brought Joan worldwide acclaim for a largely improvised performance. One of the first of a film movement known as the French New Wave Cinema style that was lampooned often, usually filmed in sharp black and white, featuring emotive characters talking in metaphors, angst-ridden and depressed against dark backgrounds. Jean wore her hair in her now famous pixie style, which became all the rage, even turning up on Audrey Hepburn. Well, riding the wave, she returned to Hollywood, making Let No Man Write My Epitaph. It bombed, and she returned to France. In 1963, she married novelist Romain Gary and had a son with him. Alexander Diego Gary. And making several French films, she returned to the States, made Lilith opposite Warren Beatty. This one was way ahead of its time. Um, like Girl Interrupted, only more shocking. Female mental patient with nephromania and schizophrenia becomes the obsession of an occupational therapist who goes mad over her. Lilith was too artsy and nonconformist to win at the box office, but Jean gathered the best reviews of her career. Washington Post uh, commended her for her beautiful grasp and projection of the role. And today, that movie is considered director Robert Rusin's masterpiece. It remained Jean's favorite as well as one of the ones she was most proud of. What she said about making herself a star of international appeal and renown, starring in a series of foreign films as the hapless wife, nephromaniac, jewel thief, and spy. Did a mundane film for Universal called Moment to Moment that failed at the box office, due mostly to bad direction and script. Then Pendulum with George Papard did better. Explored abuse of government powers, a subject keenly interested Jean. Ironic that she herself would fall victim to such abuse in just a few short years. She co-starred in a big-budget musical western Paint Your Wagon, which was panned by critics, but did okay at the theaters. Rumors of a passionate affair with Clint Eastwood on the set circulated. 1970, she co-starred in Airport, winning praise for her lovesick airline agent who pined for Burt Lancaster. Well, the airport, her marriage to Gary disintegrated. They divorced that year, but not before a rumor hit the press that Jean was pregnant by a well-known Black Panther activist. Years later, it came out this rumor was concocted by, on the order of J. Edgar Hoover himself to punish Jean for financial contributions to the Black Panther Party and other leftist organizations. Under the Freedom of Information Act, she, the shameful and sinister machinations of the FBI against Jean Seberg and others was laid bare for all to see. FBI, using the counterintelligence program, a COINTELPRO, conducted a vile smear campaign against Seberg based solely on Hoover's assumption she had to be sleeping with one of the Black Panthers while else would she be donating money to their organization. Well, Hoover, in his twisted, dirty mind, couldn't wrap his brain around the fact that a beautiful, blonde, Midwestern girl from Iowa could possibly support civil rights simply because she supported civil rights. According to him, she must surely be somehow corrupted and compromised by a godless, biracial relationship that tainted her judgment like a sexy black anti-American Satan. The stated goal of this operation was the neutralization of Seberg and to cause her embarrassment and harm her image with the public, all while taking the usual precautions to avoid being identified with the Bureau. Los Angeles Times gossip columnist uh, Joyce Haber published a piece about Jean, May 19, 1970, after receiving a tip from a reliable source. Um, said she's beautiful and she's blind, and recently she burst forth as the star of a multi-million dollar musical. Topic A is the baby Miss A is expecting. Papa said to be a rather promise, uh, prominent Black Panther. 
Well, Newsweek immediately reprinted the following week with the added bonus of identifying Miss A as Jean Seberg, and the national distribution of this was assured. One part of the story was true. Jean was six months pregnant, but with her husband's child. Distraught, she took a massive overdose of pills, was found unconscious on a beach on the island of Mallorca where she lived with her husband. He committed her to a Swiss mental hospital where she miscarried two months later. That child, a girl named Nina Hart Gary, weighed only four pounds and clearly white. Jean put the fetus in a glass coffin and took it home to Marshalltown. Wanted everybody to see that it had all been a dirty lie and it killed her baby girl. Gary claimed that Jean attempted suicide every year on the anniversary of the miscarriage. Eventually, she succeeded. The FBI's bag of dirty ticks didn't begin or end with mere bad publicity. Files released after Jean's death proved they'd had her under surveillance, both in Switzerland and France, for years. Tapped her phone. She was aware she was being stalked, monitored, and stress weighed on her emotionally and psychologically, eventually driving her over the edge. Well, she and her husband sued Newsweek, as well as other publications, and finally got a a little bit over $10,000. They clearly did not have the right lawyers. They went their separate ways, and Jean began a free fall from sober reality into the dark realm of depression, barbiturates, and alcohol. Had an affair with a Mexican gaucho while filming uh, Macho Callahan. And killed, the director was her ex-husband, Romain Gary, who remained in her life. Critics blat- uh, hated both films and noted Jean's less than stellar appearance, how ear and tired she looked. 1972, she married director Dennis uh, Barry and spent the rest of the 70s acting in French and Italian films, appearing only once in an American production called Mousy with Kirk Douglas. Well, in the last years, her social drinking became chronic alcoholism. Her marriage to Barry, fa- Barry fell apart and she went into a steep decline. Bounced aimlessly from affair to affair while Gary Roman watched helplessly and able to stop the love of his life from destroying herself. At the time of her death, she's living in Paris with an Algerian boyfriend. Left the apartment August 30th, 1979, and wasn't seen alive again. It was the anniversary of her daughter's death. She took two bottles with her, one filled with water and the other with barbiturates. Found ten days later, naked and decomposing beneath a blanket in the back seat of her Renault. She clutched a note addressed to her 16-year-old son, Diego. It said, forgive me, I can only live in a world that beats the weak. Puts down the blacks and women and massacres the infants. Understand me, I know that you can't, and you know I love you. Be strong, your mother, who loves you, Jean. Well, days after her body was discovered, FBI Bureau Chief William Webster held a news conference in which he confessed the FBI's crime against an innocent, fragile woman, which contributed substantially to her eventual demise. He said the days when the FBI used derogatory information to combat advocates of unpopular causes have long since passed, and those days are gone forever. Um, However, there was no consolation for those who loved Jean or Jean herself. Roman Gary tried to carry on, but the specter of his tragic love, a woman he could never truly let go, haunted him until his own suicide in 1980. Jean's son, Diego, was left an orphan under the shadows of both his parents' tragic fates. He had eventually married and lived an ordinary life working in a bookstore in Spain. Jean would have appreciated that. She barely remembered she barely remembered the day other than for her failed first attempt at pleasing the world in St. Joan. And also for being one of the most famous people the U.S. government managed to unjustly kill in the name of patriotism. It's really a toss-up who had the more tragic life, St. Joan or the sad little girl who portrayed her. At least Joan of Arc was canonized, unlike uh, Jean Seberg. Well, on that note, we call it into today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about a few more tragic Hollywood deaths. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.